would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 16th chapter. <clears throat> I, I really do appreciate you being here this morning, and, and uh, I realize we have a lot of family, a lot of friends that are here, and, and we appreciate you making this uh, part of your Easter Sunday for you to come. We, we are blessed. We have all three of our kids in, and, and uh, uh, our son-in-law, they were all here last night, came in yesterday afternoon. And, but because of that, um, we, we were spread out kind of all over the house. And I have a, morning, a Sunday morning tradition. I have a routine that I do every Sunday morning to prepare and, and, and get myself ready. And, and part of my getting up to do that is, is to have some quiet in the house. And, and, um, and they were sleeping everywhere. And I didn't want to wake them up because I, I get up early on Sunday morning. It's just something that I do and, and uh, kind of isolate myself and just kind of go over my notes and stuff. And so this morning, because I didn't want to wake them up, um, I went out on the back porch in the dark. And, and I may have started a new Sunday morning tradition this morning. I was out there and, you know, I just, just think about Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. I was out there when the sun came up. And, and it was a beautiful time of worship. I had my, my phone just playing some worship music, and I was reading and praying, and, and I mean, I just, I had church on the back porch this morning in, in, as the sun came up. And I, you know, I really want you to understand that's really what this Sunday is all about, because it, it is for the New Testament church the, the single greatest day that they could experience. And, and it came in the midst of their single greatest discouragement. I mean, the disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, Jesus had told them, but, but if you really read the gospel accounts of the, the, the disciples at this point in time, before Easter Sunday really becomes well known, what's happened is, is they're hiding, and they're afraid, and they're scared, and they're hanging out in the upper room licking their wounds and wondering if the people or the, the, the Pharisees are going to come after them, are we going to die too? I mean, they, they're not thinking that this is a good day. And yet the Bible tells us that Easter Sunday is a great day. This isn't just a good day. This is a great day to be in God's house. And this morning, I, I want us to look at some things that, that are facts that deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why those facts are important for you and I. Before we, we come to even study the gospel, there's some things that you and I need to know. Now, throughout history... People have defended the resurrection from a biblical perspective. And that, that's been well and good. But uh, the reality is, and there may be some of you here this morning. I, I shared that earlier. Some of you are here because you have to be here. Some of you are here because you, you, you want to be because it's your Easter Sunday tradition. And some of you are, are, are here with family and friends. And, 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 and you know, maybe you go to church every Sunday. That, that's not the point. The reality is there are a lot of us in here that the truth is we're the authority in life. See, we make our own decisions, and, and nothing really gets in the way of that. We become our authority, and, and, and because of that, sometimes we pick and choose the parts of the Bible that, that are true. And, and so I don't want to begin this morning from a position that, that everybody here automatically believes everything the Bible says. I want to share with you some facts. You see, there's a movement that's come up today, apologists. An apologist is somebody who defends a faith. And there's an, a movement that's being led today to approach the historicity, the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ from a different perspective, from what they call the perspective of five 
minimal facts. And here's the condition for these five facts that they use. And the guy who's the champion of this, two guys, Dr. Habermas and Dr. Michael Lacona, are the guys who are the champions of this. But they bring the criteria to these facts that they use to this perspective. First of all, for the facts to be used, they have to be... Uh, there has to be strong historical evidence, not only in the Bible, but there has to be strong historical evidence in extra-biblical materials to, to, to support these facts. Number two, that these facts have to be accepted by the preponderance of scholars today who have studied the historicity of the resurrection, both those who are believers and those who are skeptics, those who don't believe at all, some atheists and agnostics. And so those two criteria are used to put these five minimalist facts together. Here's the first one. The first minimalist fact is that Jesus Christ died by crucifixion. Now, what are the facts that we have that testify that Jesus Christ was crucified? Well, first of all, we have the oral traditions. Uh, we have the, the stories that came out of that period in time. We have the Gospels. All four Gospel accounts testify to the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. But in addition to that, we have some extra-biblical resources. There's a guy named Tacitus who was a Roman historian. And from the Roman perspective, he has no reason to be pro-crucifixion or anti-crucifixion. I mean, he's just reporting the history of Rome. And in the history of Rome, he says, Jesus Christ claimed to be the king of the Jews, and the Messiah was crucified by Pilate. Extra biblical, no reason for him to testify, but, but he does. There's another guy in that same period of time, a guy named Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and he also writes, believe me, the Jews didn't want Jesus to be anything other than just a good man. He writes, Jesus Christ in his annals was executed. The matter, the means of execution in this day and time by the Romans was crucifixion. And then there's another guy, he is a, 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 a pagan philosopher, a pagan historian of that day, a guy named Amarabar Serapion, and, and um, he writes, Jesus Christ was crucified. So we have not only the oral traditions, the gospel accounts, but we also have those three people who wrote during this period of time histories from other perspectives in biblical who say Jesus Christ was crucified. Number two, the second mentalist fact is the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, that the disciples believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. There's a historian, uh, an atheist, agnostic historian, a guy named Bart Ehrman who believes, and he'll tell you the disciples really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what he says is, is that they all had a vision, a shared vision, that they just saw together that Jesus really didn't rise. They just believed they did. But he says they really believed it because it changed their life. The problem with a vision is that the disciples were not predisposed to believe it. See, to have a psychological shared vision, and there are groups today that have had that. We've seen some of those suicide cults, some of those things. that They have a predisposed psychological state to believe what's said. Well, the disciples didn't. They're hiding in the upper room, licking their wounds. They're not predisposed to believe that Jesus is going to rise. In fact, we're going to talk about it in a minute. They were headed to the place Jesus said they weren't going to be. He wasn't going to be. Uh, another historical fact of that, we have the disciples themselves saying, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We have the apostle Paul, who is the chief persecutor of the church, who says in his own testimony that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. 
So we have these oral traditions, and then we have people like Tertullian, early church father, Polycarp, who was the bishop at Smyrna. Uh, Tertullian writes about Polycarp and says that Polycarp was appointed the bishop of Smyrna, the church at Smyrna that we read about in Revelation, by the apostle John. So John, who had his life changed by the resurrection, appoints this pastor, and he tells him his testimony, and Polycarp testifies. So we have eyewitnesses of eyewitnesses who heard the disciples say, Jesus appeared to me alive. And and so we've got these facts that, that Jesus Christ has, the oil traditions, all of these things. We have the creed that we read about, and you don't have to turn here, but I want to read it to you, 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to hear the creed that Paul puts down, and this is what he says, For I passed on you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of who remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. So we have the testimony of Paul, and most Biblical scholars believe that that creed that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15 was a creed that James, the half-brother of Jesus, gave him. Now, why is that important? Because James didn't believe in Jesus. Go read the Gospel of Mark, third chapter sometime. The Bible says that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. And so here we have a skeptic. And we have an atheist, a persecutor, the chief persecutor of the church, who say, Jesus appeared to me. Somebody I'm not predisposed to believe in appeared to me. Now, number three, fact, the Apostle Paul, who went from the chief persecutor of the church, no predisposition to believe in Jesus, to the chief proponent of the church. Lee Strobel, in his book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection, makes the point that liars make really bad martyrs. Liars make really bad martyrs. All the disciples died a martyr's death for what they believed to be true. The apostle Paul, who was a skeptic, non-believer, died a martyr's death for what he believed to be true. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in his own brother while he was alive, became a believer after he saw his resurrected brother, and he died for what he believed to be true. That's important because liars make really bad martyrs. Now, think about it, and you're probably sitting there saying, well, Brother Sean, they're Muslims blowing themselves up. They're martyring. They're dying for what they believe to be true. Correct. You're right. They are. They are dying for what they believe to be true. The difference in the apostles is If it's made up, they made it up. They would be dying for what they knew was a lie. Not what they believed to be true, but what they knew was a lie. So the very fact that they were willing to give themselves up, why? Liars make really bad martyrs. Number four. The conversion of James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why is that important? Well, because if you're going to create a hero story in this day and time, you don't have one of the chief components of the hero story not believe in his brother. That's not a great story. I mean, that's not a, a good thing that this brother who watched Jesus grow up doesn't even believe in him, but yet that component remains 
in the story. James believes and is martyred. A skeptic who has no reason believes and is martyred for his faith. Number five, the fact that the tomb is empty. How do we know the tomb is empty? Three factors. The first they call the Jerusalem factor. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. And just a few days later, the disciples are testifying in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. See, if they'd gone to Spain or to Italy, or if they'd come to the new world and said Jesus rose from the dead, he died over there and he rose from the dead, we've seen him, that'd be different. But they were testifying in the city where people saw him die that he was resurrected. The Jerusalem factor. Number two, the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had carved for Jesus. Some people want to say that that was his tomb and he just loaned it to Jesus. No, Joseph was a rich man. He could afford to be buried in the good part of town. A rich man would not have had a tomb constructed so close to a place of death that was cursed. He made that tomb just for Jesus for the reason that his body wouldn't just be thrown in a common grave. And the tomb was empty. How do we know? Well, the Pharisees themselves, they created a story. And the story was that the disciples stole the body. Why is that important? Because it proves the tomb was empty. If the tomb isn't empty, you don't need to have a story. It proves that there was, they were trying to explain it. Why? Because it was empty. And number three factor for the fifth minimal fact, the women find the empty tomb. Why is that important? Well, because in this day and age, women couldn't be witnesses. You wanted to commit the perfect crime, do it in front of women. Because they couldn't testify against you in a court of law. They couldn't be legal witnesses. So the fact that the women go to the tomb, see the, the empty tomb, experience the angel's testimony, and see the risen Jesus, and then go back and tell the disciples who are hiding in the upper room, not believing that Jesus is alive, and that that element stays in the story, proves that it's true. Because if they're going to make it up, Peter and John would have found the empty tomb. Men would have found the empty tomb. They'd be the heroes, not the women. But it stayed in there. Why? Because it's true. And those five minimalist facts are accepted today by the preponderance of historians, both those who believe and those who are skeptic. So what? So what? What's it mean for us? What, why does this event that happened 2,000 years ago that Lee Strobel says is the centerpiece of our faith? Because they point to the fact that he has been raised from the dead and he is Lord. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 16th chapter. And if you would stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 2, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? 
Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. You may be seated. May God bless his word this morning as we study it together. Would you please pray with me? Father, I ask you in these next few moments just to speak to our hearts. God, may your word be accepted in our life as true. May the fact of the resurrection change who we are. May it shape us. May it mold us. May it encourage us. Father, may the power that raised Jesus from the dead speak to hearts and change lives today so that Jesus Christ will be exalted and glorified and his name lifted up. And we pray that this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what? So what? Well, first of all, what's it mean for us? It means that he is resurrected. Verse 6, Mark writes the the words of the angels. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. That phrase literally means that he has been awakened from the dead, that, that his body really was crucified, that he wasn't in a coma, that he wasn't just halfway there. He really was dead. The Romans were experts at death. They were, they were good. They had perfected the art of putting somebody to death. They knew that Jesus was dead. They wouldn't have let him off the cross. They didn't let the other two off the cross. Those other two guys were still hanging there when they took Jesus' body down. They knew that Jesus Christ was dead. And the Bible says that he was resurrected. He had been awakened from the dead. The disciples, Mary and Mary and the others who went, they went. The disciples were going to the place where they expected to find Jesus when he had told them, I'm not going to be there. Don't come. Why were they going? Well, they were going to complete the job of anointing his body that Joseph and Nicodemus had begun in haste just a few days before. But he had said, look, don't show up. I'm not going to be there. But they went believing they were going to find him where he said he wasn't going to be. The Romans had done everything that they could to secure the tomb. They had used their power and their authority to make sure that this wouldn't happen. The Pharisees had used the law to punish him and convict him of blasphemy and put him to death. And the disciples didn't believe. But here, I want you to see this. The power of Rome... The authority of the law and the disbelief of the disciples were not enough to keep Jesus Christ in the grave. He was resurrected. He has been resurrected. It means that the power of God affected this on his body. Jesus Christ was not resurrected as a demonstration of his power. The Bible says that God's power was acted upon him. God raised him from the dead. Okay? Why is that important? Because it wasn't a demonstration of his power. It was vindication that he really is God's one and only, only begotten, never to be duplicated son, the Messiah. And Here's why it's important. 
Because that same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is available for you today. It's available to resurrect your marriage. It's available to resurrect your, your financial concerns. It's available to resurrect your home or to resurrect a relationship between friends or between a mother and a son or a father and a son or a mother and a daughter. It's available to change who you are. God's power is still God's power. And there is no greater power in the world than the power of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. My family, Sulphur Springs, grew up on a road that was a farm market road when my grandparents first built their house there. And, and it was just a little highway, two-lane highway that ran from Sulphur Springs to Quitman and, and, and on down to, to Mineola. This is a highway that went through there, but through the course of time, that highway expanded. As the, as the city limits grew, that highway soon became a, a, a five-lane highway, two going each way and a center turn lane. And through the course of time, while they lived there, my grandparents lived in that house for 60 years. And while they lived there and their kids, my dad and my uncle were growing up, they had a lot of pets. And that highway was a busy highway, and that highway claimed the lives of many of their pets. And so they would go find an animal dead, run, head over. They, they'd pick it up and take it in the back patch and bury it, have a little funeral service for it. And my grandmother tells a story about my uncle who had a cat named Snowball. Big, white, beautiful, fluffy cat. David, Uncle David, came home from school one day, and Snowball had been crushed. Heartbroken, little nine, ten-year-old boy, crushed that his pet was dead. He goes out, he picks up Snowball out of the highway, takes her into the back patch, digs a hole, puts her body in the ground, covers it up, has a funeral service for her. Goes back inside, heartbroken, distraught. My grandmother wrote in her journal, I didn't know what I was going to do for David. He was crushed. He was dismayed. Life, as he knew it, was over. And then he heard Snowball knocking at the back door. They had buried the wrong cat. Still don't know whose cat they buried. They didn't bury the wrong Jesus. He really died. He was really buried. And he's really resurrected. That truth is available for you today. Second thing that the Bible tells us is not only is he resurrected, but number two, it, the Bible challenges us that we have to see for ourselves. Look at verse 6. It says, he is not here. See the place where they put him. Who's they? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They had placed him in the tomb. They took him. They took his body, body down. Nicodemus and Joseph, friends of, of Pilate, probably both members of the Sanhedrin, they, they come, they take him down. They begin the preparal. And, and the angels say, come see the place for their way. Now, in Texas, we like y'all. Okay, we like, we like to say y'all. And when we say y'all, we mean everybody here, right? Y'all, I'm glad y'all are here today. And I'm, I'm talking about everybody. This isn't y'all. Okay, they... They didn't speak Texan in New Testament times. But this in Texan wouldn't even be y'all. This would be you. See, the way this is written in the original language of the New Testament, it means you, second person, individually. The ladies come to the tomb as a group, but the angels tell them as individuals. You personally. 
you individually, you singularly, you come see. You come make the choice. You determine that the tomb is really empty. And it's the same choice that God calls for us to make today. See, you have to make the choice first. I can't make the choice for you. Grandma can't make the choice for you. Your mom or dad can't make the choice for you. Aunt, uncle, whoever's been. Man, some of you are here this morning, and and the reality is, the truth is, there have been people praying for you and your family for years that you'd make the choice. That you wouldn't just know some stuff about Jesus, but that you'd really have a relationship to him based upon the fact that the tomb is empty and he's alive your life can be changed but the reality is you have to make that choice you have to come and see for yourself that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is and that he really did die for your sin the sin of the world see Jesus didn't just die for some sin the Bible says he died for all sin tomorrow we're going to have a, a celebration of life for one of my dearest friends this side of glory in, in Lubbock at 1 o'clock. And, and we're going we're gonna to celebrate John's life and, and what he did, but my friend John Randalls was fond of saying this, if you and I really understood grace, we'd be done with sin. If we really understood the depths of grace, And what Jesus Christ really did on the cross for you and for me, we'd be done with sin. Oh, that we would begin to understand grace. That we would begin to understand what it means to make the choice. You see, the reality is there's no place for indecision. You're either in or out, all in or all out. There's no straddling the fence. You make the choice. This day and time, well, there are a lot of different depictions of the, of the tomb. And you might have even been to the Middle East, and there's a site that they say we believe this is the tomb where Jesus was placed. But the reality is historical evidence kind of points to the fact that while it would have been a real large, heavy stone that they rolled, it probably wasn't a stone that was man-sized, that a man could just walk in. The reality is probably to get in the tomb, even Mary and Mary and all the others who came, when the angel said, you come see, they had to kneel. They had to stoop. They had to get down and grow in in a kneeling, submissive position to see. And the reality is, every single one of us needs to kneel. The Bible says it this way, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, the reality is, nobody's getting out of life without kneeling. The difference is, some of us are going to do it now. We're going to go into eternity with him. And others are going to do it at the front side of eternity. And they're not going to heaven. They're going to admit it. But the Bible says they're headed to a place called the pit. Hell, Gehenna, the place of fire. Where fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. You and I have to make 
the determination that he is Lord and that he is Savior to kneel before him. Time's running out. So it's my prayer today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll get that settled before you leave here. And not just some stuff about him, but that you see him as a resurrected Lord that will change your life. The third thing this passage teaches us is what do we do once we've made that decision? Verse 7, angel speaking, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he has told you. Most New Testament scholars believe that Peter and Mark, Peter was there with Mark, reminding him, editing, talking, sharing with him, bringing things to memory. And so that's why that phrase, and Peter, go tell his disciples, and Peter. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that, that you and I are that and Peter, that we've all failed. We've all messed up. We've all done something to deny our Lord. And that and Peter is for you. You can put your name in there. Go tell the disciples and Sean. Go tell the disciples and Bill. Go tell the disciples and Matt. Go tell the disciples and Josh. Go tell and. You're it. You're and. God wants you to know he loves you. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to the cross for you. And you can make a choice and the power of God can and will be available in your life it's just truth your choice but when I make that choice he says real simple go tell go tell what your testimony that's what, the, that's what the disciples, that's what these first ladies, that, just go tell them. Go tell them what? Just go tell them Jesus is alive. That's it. That's the word. That's your testimony. Jesus is alive, and he's changed my life. That's it. We share way too much stuff on Facebook today. Way too much stuff on Twitter. Or, and I, I just know about Twitter and Facebook. I do not have a Facebook page. Uh, amen. Amen. I can barely figure out how to turn on my phone and my computer, much less. I, I do tweet, and, and I try to tweet spiritual things most of the time, unless I'm giving somebody a hard time. But if we can use Facebook or Twitter or whatever all that other stuff is to talk about anything in the world, why can't we use that to share our testimony? What, what was the disciples' instructions? Go tell Go tell what? Go tell them that Jesus is alive. Go tell them that Jesus has made a difference in your life. Go tell. You and I are supposed to encourage one another by sharing our testimony. But we want to be private. Oh, I, I don't want to share too much. Why not? See, if I'll tell you what God's doing in my life, that encourages you. You'll tell me what God's doing in your life, it encourages me. And then when other disciples see us getting encouraged, they want to get encouraged. And when the world sees disciples getting encouraged, they want to go, hey, what's going on? Go tell. Just go tell. Lead from this place where you met the resurrected Lord and go share your testimony of what God has done in your life. They shared so that others would be encouraged and they would share. Tell your story of faith. 
and encourage somebody. There's a book called The Book of Legends of the Talmud and the Midrash. And it's a story of Jewish tradition and legend. And the story is there of Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis, even in Jesus' day, who had a, a beloved servant. He called him his notorious servant. I mean, this, this guy was like a child to him. His name was Tobi. And Tobi served Rabbi Gamaliel faithfully all the days of his life. And somewhere about midlife, something happened, an accident in the home, and Rabbi Gamaliel accidentally poked out the eye of his servant, according to tradition of Tobi. But Rabbi Gamaliel was excited because, you see, according to Jewish law, when a slave lost an eye or a tooth or part of his body, he could be set free as payment for the lost thing. He could be set free. So Rabbi Gamaliel, while he didn't mean to, he was excited because his servant, his beloved servant, his friend, this member of his family was going to earn his freedom. He was going to be granted freedom. Rabbi Gamaliel tells one of his fellow rabbis, Rabbi Joshua, he says, have you heard about my notorious servant to be? And he said, no, I haven't. He said, what about him? He said, he's going to be granted his freedom. He said, really, tell me what happened. He said, well, the other day we were working and I, I accidentally poked out his eye. And because of that, he's going to be granted his freedom. And Rabbi Joshua looked at him and said, your confession carries no weight. Rabbi Gamaliel stopped and said, what do you mean? Rabbi Joshua looked at him and said, because the law requires that everything be established by two witnesses. And there is nobody witnessing on behalf of the slave. Please hear what I'm about to say. I've said this before, and sometimes I say it too fast, and, and people get confused, and they think that I'm promoting universalism. I'm not. People are going to die, and they're going to go to a literal place called hell. Okay? It's real. It's a place where people are separated from ever from God. And what's even worse is according to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, the 11th chapter, the people who are separated can see heaven and realize what they missed out on. That's the most awful hell I could ever think of. But hear what I'm about to say. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for some sin, right? No. The Bible says that Jesus died for all sin. So that means that every person who has ever been born on the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, what he was saying is it is satisfied. It is filled up. It is full to the point of overflowing that everyone has had their sin paid for. According to the law, it has been satisfied. The debt has been paid. And there is an opportunity for them, those slaves to sin, to receive their freedom. But not everybody accepts that truth. And so there are forgiven people. Their sin's been forgiven, their sin has been paid for, but they do not accept it, and they go into hell. 
because they've not accepted the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. It's kind of the same thing as Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Joshua, isn't it? The reason a lot of people end up there is because there are no witnesses on behalf of those who are enslaved. You have a testimony. If Jesus Christ has changed your life, if you know who he is, not just some stuff about him, but he's changed your life, you have a testimony. And you and I have been called to be his witness. The Gospel of Matthew, the, the, the 10th chapter, Jesus says there in, in the 32nd, 33rd verse that whosoever would profess me before the, the men, I'll profess before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the angels in heaven. You have a testimony. Share it. You, you have a testimony. Allow God to use it. Be a witness. Do we really understand grace? Said when we started, a lot of us are here this morning for different reasons. Maybe you're here because you were made to come. I don't care why you started. I just care how you end up. The reality is today can be the first day of the rest of your eternity. If you will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, God will do it. And that power that is available to resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead that vindicated him as the Son of God is the same power that's available to you. The power that parted the Red Sea, yours. The power that descended at Pentecost, yours. The power to be a witness, yours. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and the truth is, when you came in here, you came in here hurting. And to a degree, probably every single one of us has something that's hanging in our lives. Guilt, shame, hurt, betrayal, anger, frustration, fear, doubt. Pastor, I'd really like to believe you. Man, I, I don't know how to put this bag down. Great. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew 11th chapter 20 verse, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who have a bag, come. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Let him unpack your bag. And there's a lot of us, our staff, we'd love to walk you through that scripturally. How you lay that bag down and let it go. Wherever you are today, I pray that you hear the word of Christ. Come to me all are weary it's his promise to give you rest